My introduction to this evening's talk on Nahum, which will bring to an end then, uh, tonight will bring to an end our three-part series. My introduction should maybe contain a bit of a warning for its depiction of violence is somewhat graphic. So, I hope that you are not feeling uh, squeamish this evening. I'm going to uh, read to you a bit from a monument commemorating the first 18 years of the reign of one of the Assyrian emperors, Ashurnasirpal II. So this was actually the period 859 to 877 BC. So it's a bit before uh, when Nahum was actually um, issuing his prophecy, but it was still obviously during the time when Assyria was the dominant world empire. And Ashurnasirpal II wrote this, or it says about on the, this monument, quoting him, great number of them in the land of Kerai I slew. 260 of their fighting men I cut down with the sword. I cut off their heads and I formed them into pillars. Bubu, son of Buba, I flayed in the city of Arbella and I spread his skin upon the city wall. I flayed all the chief men in the city of Surah who had revolted and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar some I impaled upon the pillar in stakes, and others I bound to stakes around the pillar. Many within the border of my own land I flayed, and I spread their skins upon the walls. And I cut off the limbs of the officers, of the royal officers who had rebelled. Six hundred of the warriors of Hulia I put to the sword. 3,000 captives I burned with fire. I did not leave a single one among them alive to serve as a hostage. Their corpses I formed into pillars. Their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. 3,000 of the warriors of the city of Tula I put to the sword. Many captives from among them I burned with fire. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from others I cut off their noses, their ears. Of many I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads, and I bound their heads to posts round about the city. What I have just read you was typical of Assyrian rulers. Assyria indeed became a byword for violence. The Assyrians glorified violence, making a god out of violence. James Montgomery Boyce writes, the utter fiendishness of impaling defeated soldiers on stakes, skinning commanders alive, cutting off limbs, noses and ears, putting out eyes, heaping up skulls in the city squares and burning vast numbers alive was without parallel in the ancient world. 
The Assyrians would simply as a form of sport hold contests to see if they could remove the skin from a person before that person would succumb to death. Rebel leaders and kings would be tied with dog chains and forced to live in kennels. Others would be forcibly put to death by their own sons. They would make, the Assyrians would make the sons of the captured king put their father to death. Severed heads would be displayed as ornamental decorations on walls or totem poles. So as we come to read chapter 3 of Nahum, bear in mind that the Nineveh against which the prophet thunders was the very epitome of violence and cruelty in the ancient world. So let's read then our text for this evening. So it is Nahum chapter 3. Nahum you will find between Micah and Habakkuk. So Nahum chapter 3. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt, contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile, with water around her? The river was her defense, the waters her wall. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. Lots were cast for her nobles, and all her great men were put in chains. You too will become drunk. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with their first ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops. They are all women. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed their bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your defenses. Work the clay. Tread the mortar. Repair the brickwork. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you down and like grasshoppers consume you. 
multiply like grasshoppers, multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants till they are more than the stars of the sky. But like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. Your guards are like locusts. Your officials like swarms of locusts that settle in the walls on a cold day. But when the sun appears, they fly away and no one knows where. O king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Jeff remarked that my series on Nahum should be renamed as Nahum, for it is pretty bleak stuff, much of it. But what I propose to do then is just we're going to just work our way through the text and then I'm going to finish with two, two lessons. So verse one, woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And actually, apparently, literally, this reads as woe to the city of bloods, plural. We've already seen how the Assyrians gloried in death and torture. Violence was their defining characteristic. But they were, apart from violence, they were known for other things as well. One of which was deception. Their deceptive ways. And indeed the Bible records for us one instance of this. In 2 Kings chapter 18, we read of how Sennacherib's field commander invited those who were holed up in Jerusalem by the Assyrian army to, and I quote him, Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern. I write as if that was going to happen to them. It was lies, deception. But the Assyrians were also known for their plunder. As a result of their imperialist conquests, the Assyrians amassed an unbelievable amount of wealth in the form of tribute, and you know, which had to be paid to them, and booty, what they actually stole, what they took from their enemies. King Hezekiah of Judah, for example, had to pay more than 11 tons of silver and one of gold to Sennacherib. And from Thebes, to which we'll be turning in a moment, The Assyrians took gold, precious stones, linen, horses, and idols, leading Ashurbanipal to proclaim, With this weighty loot, I left Thebes. With full hands, I have returned to Nineveh. Regarding verses 2 to 3, commentators divide over whether this is a description of the Assyrian forces conquering others, Or what is going to happen to the citizens of Nineveh as they fall to the Babylonians and Medes? Perhaps the latter is more likely. But either way, it's a scene of 
terror and utter carnage. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number. And our friend from last week, the Greek historian Diodorus, in describing the fall of Nineveh, wrote of a quantity beyond counting of dead bodies. And he wrote that the Tigris River turned red with blood. People stumbling over the corpses. Um, there's an archaeologist, there was an archaeologist called David Stonick um, who was involved um, in, in analyzing the remains that they eventually found of Nineveh. And he wrote, he reported, I've never seen anything like the mass of tangled bodies with weapons in the midst of them. Sheer carnage. And in verses 4 to 5, we have a further double charge against the Assyrians, that of harlotry and occultism. Nahum employs the metaphor of a whore. Assyria is called a harlot, a mistress, and a prostitute. All not very flattering. And the idea that is that Assyria in her lust, that is lust for territory and wealth, enslaved other nations, bringing their peoples within her grasp. And then there was Assyria's fondness for the realm of the dark arts, for sorcery and witchcraft. The Assyrians were very much into good luck charms, omens, incantations, astrology, superstition, necromancy or communication with the dead and other demonic practices. They were, as Gordon Bridger remarks, in the grip of the occult. This was a wicked people, a wicked nation. Verses 5 to 6 repeats the Lord's terrifying words that we saw last time, I am against you, before pronouncing how Assyria is going to be humiliated. Nineveh, its capital city, will be exposed like a naked woman and will be pelted with filth. And filth there means what you probably think it means. Nineveh will be shamed, made an object of scorn and contempt. As Gareth Keel says, she will get what a whore deserves. And verse 7, there will be no one to mourn for her or comfort her. Nineveh will be alone and deserted. And Nahum then turns to the historical example of Thebes, the great Egyptian city, which had itself been conquered by the Assyrians in 663 BC, and which now serves as a picture of the fate that is going to befall Nineveh. Nahum begs the question, are you, that is Nineveh, more powerful than Thebes was in its prime? Thebes had magnificent natural defenses provided by the River Nile, she also had significant international alliances, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Libya. 
Yet she was taken captive and exiled. Her nobles sold off as slaves. And her children, the children would have been too much hassle for the Babylonian, or for, sorry, yes, for the um, Assyrian army to take back to Nineveh. So what the Assyrian forces did was they took the children and they smashed their heads in, in the open streets. Again, it is worth pausing here to give a wee bit of history. Thebes was a city about 300 miles south of modern-day Cairo. It was a major metropolis with immense palaces, and it formed the burial site for many of the pharaohs. Homer spoke of its vast wealth of silver and gold. That wasn't, by the way, Homer Simpson, just in case you were wondering, but the ancient Greek Homer. Thebes enjoyed the advantage of being protected by waters on every side. But on top of that, it was a heavily fortified city. Plus, it had these alliances, friendly relations with neighboring countries. And yet in 663 BC, Thebes was utterly destroyed by the Assyrians. Ashurbanipal, you see, had become convinced that he could not properly govern such a significant city, which, you know, so far removed from Nineveh. So he chose to make an example of it, taking captive everyone he could and killing all the rest babies and children included. And what the Assyrians did to Thebes, the Lord through the Babylonians and Medes would soon do to Nineveh. Verse 11 is another interesting verse. You too will become drunk, that is, drunk with the cup of the Lord's wrath. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. And history tells us that there there were only a few, there were only a small number of Assyrians who managed to escape the destruction of uh, Nineveh. But those Assyrians that fled and those that remained from elsewhere, they, they fled to Haran where they made Asher Ubalit II their new king. Asher Ubalit is probably spinning in his grave at that mispronunciation of his name, but it's my best attempt. But Haran was to fall to the Babylonians within two years. A year on from that, the remnant of the Assyrians made an attempt to retake Haran from the Babylonians, but their effort failed And that, folks, is the last that we hear in history of the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire was gone. Toto, it was absolutely erased from the map of history. The remaining verses resume the tone of mockery, the taunt directed at Nineveh. Verse 12 conjures up the image of easy pickings. Nineveh's fortresses will fall like figs from a shaken tree straight into the mouths of their gorging enemies. 
Verse 13 isn't exactly politically correct. Nahum would not have gone down well with today's woke agenda. Look at your troops. They are all like women. And I have read several interpretations of that verse. One is that so many of the Ninevite and the Assyrian men had either been killed or had fled that the remaining defenders of Nineveh were largely females, largely women. A second view is that the remaining Assyrian army is being ridiculed as being effeminate. We might say that the Assyrian camp was camp. But a third view is the most likely to be correct. The Assyrian army is weak in comparison to the invaders, just like women are in the main the physically weaker sex. And note that I did say physically, not mentally or emotionally, because we boys are not always towers of strength and fortitude. When a crisis comes, often we're showing up by uh, women. Anyhow, the city is exposed. Its gates wide open. The bars that secured them are consumed by fire. Verses 14 to 15 highlight the futility of Nineveh's defensive actions. Storing up reserves of fresh water for the Babylonian siege that is coming and strengthening and repairing its protective walls will be to no avail. And incidentally, archaeologists did find evidence that the Ninevites did seek to rapidly erect another counter wall. Do you remember we talked about the defenses of Nineveh last week? There was the eight-mile-long inner wall and then the massive 80-mile in circumference outer wall. Well, in the extremes when they were being besieged, they tried to build another wall, but fire and the enemy's sword couldn't be withstood for long. In verses 16 to 17, Nahum resorts to insect imagery to make the point that no matter how numerous the Ninevites might be, they are doomed to death. And the insect metaphor also serves to illustrate Nahum's condemnation of Nineveh's traitors, guards, and bureaucrats. For like locusts, their traitors are discovered to be just purely self-interested. And once they had stripped the land, they were off. They were out of here. They weren't hanging around to defend the city. As John Mackey comments, there was no profit for them in the rubble. Likewise, the guards and officials are said to fly away in the face of trouble. No loyalty to their nation, just out to save their own skin. And how often has that pattern been repeated down through the ages where rulers will flee when they realize the game's up? 
Verse 18 addresses the king of Assyria, probably Saracus, who was the great-grandson of Sennacherib. It's under his rule that the nation's leaders are found wanting, slumbering, slumbering, whilst the common people are being scattered. Grace Emerson calls it the sleep of death. Verse 19, our final verse, brings out two points. First, there is no way back for Assyria. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. As we have seen, Assyria was going to disappear off the world's map. Other cities had fallen and been subsequently rebuilt, but not so Nineveh. Two millennia later, archaeologists would eventually discover the remains of Nineveh. What that amounted to was two mounds of earth and a few bits of crumbling wall. That was all that was left. But secondly, there will be no mourning over Nineveh's demise. Rather, there will be great rejoicing over the destruction of such an oppressive empire. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? As Martin Pakula writes, the joy was universal because the oppression was universal. And that takes us then to tonight's two lessons. Number one, God's punishment is always condign. I know I get criticized for using that word previously, condign. Condign simply means the punishment fits the crime. The punishment fits the crime. Previously, we've spoken of the wrath of God and commented upon upon how unpopular a notion the wrath of God is today, not only in society, but in certain church circles as well. But God's wrath, that is his righteous anger, is very real, and it is not something that we should feel the need to apologize for. God's wrath is always righteous and fair. Evildoers will get what they deserve. Not necessarily in this life, of course, we know that, but in the great day of judgment, in the day of eternal reckoning. God had taught that truth to the people of Israel through the principle of an eye for an eye. And even in the New Testament age, we're told that God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, Galatians 6 and 7. And the fate of Assyria, I would suggest to you, illustrates this perfectly. For what Assyria had done to other nations would now be visited upon them. As the Assyrians had raped, pillaged, burnt, and slaughtered others, so Nineveh was going to suffer the same fate. What will hell be for unrepentant sinners and doers of evil, but the just consequences of their defiance of God and the wickedness that they have shown 
towards others. And this raises the issue of how we should pray in respect of uh, individuals and regimes which are so manifestly evil, the likes of North Korea, the likes of Afghanistan. Like the Lord, we should not take delight in the death of the wicked in itself. Our desire is that all men experience salvation. Gerald led us in prayer for that tonight, that the tyrants of the world, the persecutors, would come to faith. And that is right that we pray that. But we can still rejoice that divine justice will ultimately prevail. Where men will not repent of their evil ways, we are glad when they are taken out, so to speak. We can legitimately pray for the toppling of evil regimes and their leaders and cronies. We can clap our hands, if not literally, then metaphorically, when tyrants fall. And we can take comfort in the certain knowledge that there will be a perfectly condign eternal fate awaiting those who have caused harm to others, yet who have remained unrepentant over their crimes and perhaps even escaped or got off very lightly in terms of human justice in this life. You know, I always think of, when I think of that, I always think of Hitler. You know, Hitler blowing his own brains out in his bunker. Was that justice? No, it wasn't. Hitler got off so lightly in this life. But there's a day of reckoning to come. Secondly, and this is, of course, the final lesson for our series, is the infallibility of God's word, the infallibility of the Bible. I mentioned on week one of our studies that some liberal biblical scholars refuse to accept that Nahum was written before the fall of Nineveh. And the reason is because of the exactness between what Nahum prophesied and what history records actually happened. In fact, there is a name, they have a name for this. So prepare yourselves for it's a Latin expression. It's a new one on me. I know I'm mispronouncing it. I tried to listen to a pronunciation of it earlier today and I thought there's no way that I can pronounce this. So it is, I'm sort of pronouncing it phonetically. It is Vaticinium ex eventu. You can drop that into the next dinner party you're at if you, if you like. Um, what does it mean? It translated, it literally means a prophecy made after the event. Not before, a prophecy made after the event. In other words, it was written by someone who lived after the time, but it was put in the form of a prophecy of future events. But we conservative biblical believers are not falling for that. Nahum recorded what he saw in a divine vision that was given to him. And in that sense, Nahum was an eyewitness 
because he saw it in a vision. And the facts and the fact that events turned out exactly as he described, and I hope you've seen that from this study, the incredible correlation between what history records and what Nahum prophesied beforehand. That shows us the infallibility of the scriptures. This ought to increase our confidence in the word of God, just as the prophecies of Jesus being fulfilled, those prophecies in the Old Testament should bolster our confidence in the word of God. So should Nahum's prophecy too. And had we more time, we could think about how the biblical manuscripts were so meticulously copied over the years so that what we have today in our Bibles can be trusted as what Nahum and the other biblical authors were originally given to say. God has superintended the recording and the transmission of his word. So let's go from here tonight confident that everything that the Lord has prophesied that has not yet been fulfilled is going to be fulfilled exactly as the Bible foretells. For the Bible cannot fail. This is the inspired and infallible word of God. And thus ends our three-part series in the book of Nahum. I do hope that you have found it to be affirming of your faith in the Lord of history and in our righteous, just, and jealous God who is to be worshipped with all our being. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.